Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. We're going to go ahead and get started with our first 11th hour lecture of this series. My name is Rachel Yoder, and I live and write in Iowa City and have the great pleasure of curating this lecture series. We've been off for two weeks, so I'm really looking forward to getting started again this week. Um, if you haven't already, would you please kindly silence your cell phones or better yet, turn them off? There, are also, there is also a handout for this lecture. They may all be gone by this point, which is incentive to get here early next time. But there still may be a few floating around. If not, take this as an opportunity to meet your neighbor and share their handout. So after the lecture today, we will ha probably have a little time for some questions, so please keep that in mind. Without further ado, we'll get going. Diana Getch is the author of eight collections of poems, as well as Life and Transition, a series of 31 essays on gender in America. Her writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, and The Best American Poetry Anthology, as well as many other leading journals, newspapers, and anthologies. Her honors include a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, as well as the Grace Paley Teaching Fellowship from the New School. She has taught in MFA programs, public schools, prisons, living rooms, and for 18 years, the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. Today, Diana will present Writing from the Central Channel, in which she'll explore a somatic and energetic space well known for centuries in contemplative disciplines, yet rarely discussed in connection with writing. Please join me in welcoming Diana Getch. Good morning. Is this on? How, how is the sound in the cheap seats? Are we okay up there? Okay, great. So uh, sometimes I write a talk and sometimes I talk a talk and this time I'm going to be talking it. So you'll have PowerPoint and, uh, and as Rachel mentioned, some of you have handouts so you could follow along. But if you don't have a handout, it's fine. It'll be up here. I hope the print is large enough. And uh, so, so let's begin. Um, what I'm going to do is show you some literature, some passages from literature. They don't need a lot of introduction because uh, the first few things are all beginnings of novels, actually. So, so they just begin and we take them in. And um, you'll soon see, I think, that this principle, if I'm right about it, could actually be used, I could use any example in the world of good writing and it would somehow be okay to use in this talk. Um, so, uh, so what I'm showing you could very well be arbitrary. So here is the beginning of a novel by Truman Capote and if you don't mind I'll just read it and then we'll, we'll make some observations and comparisons. Now a traveler must make his way to Noon City by the best means he can, for there are no buses or trains heading in that direction, though six days a week a truck from the Chewberry Turpentine Company collects mail and supplies in the next door town of Paradise Chapel. 
Occasionally, a person bound for Noon City can catch a ride with the driver of the truck, Sam Radcliffe. It's a rough trip, no matter how you come, for these washboard roads will loosen up even brand new cars pretty fast, and hitchhikers always find the going bad. Also, this is lonesome country, and here in the swampland hollows where tiger lilies bloom the size of a man's head, there are luminous green logs that shine under the dark marsh water like drowned corpses. Often the only movement in the landscape is winter smoke winding out the chimney of some sorry-looking farmhouse or a wing-stiffened bird, silent and arrow-eyed, circling over the black, deserted pine woods. And again, this is the first paragraph of his novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms. And um, I read it recently and found it to be just a remarkably well-written paragraph. Um, I'd like to put it next to another first paragraph. And you see on your handout, it, it's, it's left off of the formatting because this is a PC and I did this on a Mac. But this is the first paragraph of the novel Sula by Toni Morrison. In that place where they tore the nightshade and blackberry patches from their roots to make for the Medallion City Golf, I'm sorry, it should be to make room for the Medallion City Golf Course, there was once a neighborhood. It stood in the hills above the valley town of Medallion, spread all the way to the river. It is called the suburbs now, but when black people lived there, it was called the bottom. One road, shaded by beaches, oaks, maples, and chestnuts, connected it to the valley. The beaches are gone now, and so are the pear trees where children sat and yelled down through the blossoms to passers-by. Generous funds have been allotted to level the stripped and faded buildings that clutter the road from Medallion up to the golf course. They are going to raise the time-and-a-half pool hall where feet in long shoes once pointed down from chair rungs. A steel ball will knock to dust Irene's palace of cosmetology where women used to lean their heads back on sink trays and doze while Irene lathered new Nile into their hair. Men in khaki work clothes will pry loose the slats of Reba's grill where the owner cooked in her hat because she couldn't remember the ingredients without it. What would you say is the difference in the emotional tone between these two openings of two different novels. Do you notice anything that um, clearly separates the tone? I'd say there's affection and regret in the second one. Yeah. Where there's really a distance uh, in the first. Yeah, it's well put. So, so uh, tell me your name again. I'm sorry. Maureen, Maureen uh, mentions that there's a sense of distance in the Capote passage, and then I think you use the word emotion, and the emotion of regret in the second passage. The first passage is almost emotionless, almost colorless. And even if you just look at the last line of this, a wing-stiffened bird, silent and arrow-eyed, circling over the black, deserted pine woods, compare it to the last line of this. This is the owner cooking in her hat because she couldn't remember the ingredients without it. There's something different going, not better, not worse, but there's a different color, a different tone in these passages that's fairly clear. Now take a look at this beginning of a novel, which uh, maybe you'll remember. If you really want to hear about it, 
The first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. In the first place, that stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything pretty personal about them. They're quite touchy about anything like that, especially my father. They're nice and all. I'm not saying that. But they're also touchy as hell. Besides, I'm not going to tell you my whole goddamn autobiography or anything. I'll just tell you about this madman stuff that happened to me around last Christmas, just before I got pretty run down and had to come out here and take it easy. Do you remember? Beginning of Catcher in the Rye? Compare this to another great beginning. I think these are all great beginnings. This is the beginning of uh, an early novel by Elena Ferrante. One April afternoon, right after lunch, my husband announced that he wanted to leave me. He did it while we were clearing the table. The children were quarreling as usual in the next room. The dog was dreaming, growling beside the radiator. He told me that he was confused that he was having terrible moments of weariness, of dissatisfaction, perhaps of cowardice. He talked for a long time about our 15 years of marriage, about the children, and admitted that he had nothing to reproach us with, neither them nor me. He was composed, as always, apart from an extravagant gesture of his right hand when he explained to me, with a childish frown, that soft voices, a sort of whispering, were urging him elsewhere. Then he assumed the blame for everything that was happening and closed the front door carefully behind him, leaving me turned to stone beside the sink. And again, how would you describe the difference in emotional tone between these two? And they're both openings of novels. Say your name, please. Uh, Matt. Matt. Mm-hmm. So Matt pointed out the, the, the passage from Salinger is, is rebellious, angsty, and the second one, forlorn, depressed. And depression, uh, some say, is actually a separation from self, separation from emotion. Angsty is anything but a separation from emotion. Uh, needless to say, teen angst is really not a separation from <laughs> From a, they're very in touch with their emotions, too in touch with their emotions. And what is your name, this lady? Marcella. Marcella. Um, I would say in the first one, you get a real sense of control. And in the second one, it's more of a perspective of the victim who's really not really Holden Caulfield is taking control at the beginning of The Catcher in the Rye. And the second one is a victim or someone who has released or is apart from control. Is that fair to say, Marcella? Yeah, um, it's no secret to how Holden Caulfield feels. We're not sure how the speaker in the Elena Ferrante novel feels, not yet. Um, and in fact, uh, there's the, the phrase, turn to stone, at the end. Uh, that's very different from having two hemorrhages apiece. <laughs> Completely different thing going on. And you know, each one is a fantastic beginning of a novel, but clearly they're making different choices about tone. 
So I'm going to be talking today uh, about warmth and precision. And actually, this can be said in a lot of ways, but my prose mentor is William Zinser, and he loves these words. Uh, and Bill says that uh, any good piece of prose writing, you, you, want, you want both. But then my question is, in what measure? You know, how much warmth is needed? How much precision is needed? And where do we go for one? And where do we go for the other? And if we were to just casually map these openings of novels, I think it's fair to say that Capote goes to the precision size, side. rather. There's that bird. There's, there's the, the distance between towns. There's the washboard road. He, he wants to get things accurately. And you don't know too much, actually, about the speaker at this point. And uh, Ferrante, certainly over toward the precision side. We know who's standing by a sink. We know about the exact gesture the husband makes. We know the dog is dreaming. We know where the kids are, and they're arguing. It's very precise, very laid down. You know, when you're turned to stone, maybe that's all you can be is precise. You know, you notice things visually, perhaps. And then over toward warmth, you know, certainly Morrison, certainly Salinger. A lot of warmth, a lot of emotion, um, heavy on that. But, but I don't think it's good enough to just call these two categories. I think they're more like a continuum. And it'd be more accurate to say Salinger is even more toward the emotional than, than, than Morrison. I'm not even sure we can trust the precision of Holden Caulfield. He may be unreliable in his emotion. Um, I don't think they would have two hemorrhages apiece. I think it would be one at the most, et cetera. And then it, it, it might also be fair to say Ferrante is further over toward precision than, than Capote. Um, uh, it's, it's very disembodied, especially disembodied. Um, but you could have your own judgments about this. But, but needless to say, there's, there's a continuum that, that, that we can look at. And um, so the title of this talk is Writing from the Central Channel. And we're going to take a look at different writers and, and different passages that occupy spaces along this, this thing I'm calling a central channel. And so if, if I come down and look at some of the characteristics of the warmth side and the precision side, um, <coughs> Here are, some, here are some things we can say. There's a left channel where you get too warm. I call that the Hallmark card, the syrupiness, the sentimentality. I love the William Carlos Williams quote, sentimentality is the failure of feeling. You know, you're in the left gutter of the bowling alley, too far over, the Hallmark card. The right channel I call the lab coat. Somebody called it the lab goggles. Maybe that's even better. But you know, when you're in the right side, you're too clinical. You can't trust this person. They're a scientist. How can I trust you? You write like a scientist, not like a person. Um, and th these, again, these are just categories, which are only as good as they are useful. But I'm going to fill out the categories. So on one side, you have sentimentality. On the other side, you might have abstraction, people who maybe graph the theory of their emotion. <laughs> you don't know what they feel at all. They're too abstract. Um, they're using abstract nouns. You can't see these things walking down a street. Um, when death entered the house, really? Really? Death entered your house? 
did it. Um, on the left channel, the left side, you have acting out. On the right side, you have hiding out. You don't know who this person is. These are both ego styles, by the way. I, I, think, I think acting out, we generally think of as the egotistical type of person, but actually hiding out is also an ego strategy, a way of protecting uh, you know, a more sincere, vulnerable self. I mean, both of these protect actual vulnerability. Holden is doing it, but so is the speaker in Elena Ferrante. They're both protecting in their, in their style. Left side, you have neediness. The right side, disconnection. Somebody with no needs or, or act just, just simply no inclination to state their needs. And then uh, one of the hallmarks of the left channel are writers that use a ton of cliches. They love cliches. They think cliches are the way. We had a hallmark moment. I had a light bulb moment. Oprah loves cliches. She loves this stuff. Just send me the card with the perfume, you know. I want to write a poem about Christmas cards entitled, Stop Sending Me Photos of Your Children. <laughs> you know, these Hallmark cards, these cliché, you know, they love this stuff. And then the right channel, they like their jargon. They love their industry standard official sounding. We know what that's like. You know, it's kind of how the flight attendant speaks. You know, the flight attendants say, we are experiencing some turbulence at this particular juncture. And then the pilot comes on and says, well, we got a little bumpy air going on. You know, different channels are happening here. Um, so then we have what, what I'm kind of organizing in this schematic as things that are more toward what you want. And there's left side of the channel and right side of the channel. And so one pair of opposites is extravagance and restraint. And there are writers, good writers can do both, actually. They, they go between both. But some writers tend to be more extravagant um, and warmer. And other writers tend to be more restrained. And we'll start graphing some writers onto this uh, soon. But uh, feeling versus logic. And you kind of need both. You need to keep the reader's uh, attention with both. Uh, you need to warm it up a little sometimes, but you also need to give some specifics. What does this look like? Give me an idea. Give me an example. How about some reasoning here? Um, the colloquial and the formal. And again, you might need both. You know, Morrison is starting off very colloquially, but she might pull back and get formal. She often does. Um, you know, tells you the history of the land and who owns the deed to the house. And, and maybe the economics of the town and, you know, in a very formal, precise way. And then maybe warm it up to tell us where she keeps the recipe. Where was it? Under her hat, you know. Um, so, um, and, and you may remember from the blurb that this is, uh, happens to be a meditative principle that I'm borrowing this from Eastern meditation traditions. And you can find it. Um, Central channel's been talked about for centuries. And if you're into meditation, you may already know this, but it's said to be a corridor of unfabricated space along the inside of the spine. So the spine is the back of the body, at the back, toward the back of the body, but the inside of the spine is also toward the back, but, but it's this space. It's about the diameter of a broomstick. And there happens to, in fact, be a right channel 
and the left channel. And there are, depending on you know, what instructors you go to, there are some very particular meditation instructions about the right channel and the left channel. Um, one phrase for this is called the inner posture. You know, it's the outer posture of the points of posture and how you see a meditator and what that might look like. But then there's this whole inner posture going on and you could have a perfect outer posture and be completely out of sync with your central channel. Or you could have a great inner posture and look like you're leaning, but actually you're okay because bodies are different. Um, so I borrow this from the meditative tradition. And the left channel is said to be uh, the more emotional. Uh, and the right channel is a little sharper, more logical. And sometimes you're given instructions to lean one way or lean the other. And it seems to me that actually writing is the same thing. There's ways you lean, ways you ought to lean, ways you can get back your balance. So we're not going to go too far into the meditation, but I thought I would just respect the source uh, of these ideas. And um, so coming back to these four writers, would it be fair to put them around here in the central channel, two of them toward the right side, these others toward the left, and then a little different from each other. And it's up for debate, but, but the, the point is to try to see that, that there are differences. In fact, you, you might even say that part of a, a, a writer's signature style is that we can kind of rely on them to reside in a certain place you know, in this channel. So here's uh, uh, the opening of a chapter of Arctic Dreams, Barry Lopez, uh, where he talks about the kind of people he likes to be with, the kind of companions that he trusts. And I think there's something here that relates to the central channel. And, and you can decide as we read, where, you th where, we, where would you put Lopez in the central channel? We left our camp on Pingog Island one morning, knowing a storm was moving in from the southwest, but we were not worried. We were planning to work in open water between the beach and the edge of the pack ice, only a few miles out, making bottom trawls from an open 20-foot boat. The four of us were dressed, as usual, in heavy clothes and foul-weather gear. You accept the possibility of death in such situations. Prepare for it, and then forget about it. We carried emergency and survival equipment in addition to all our scientific gear, signal flares, survival suits, a tent, and each of us had a pack with extra clothing, a sleeping bag, and a week's worth of food. Each morning we completed a checklist of the boat and radioed a distant base camp with our day plan. When we departed, we left a handwritten note on the table in our cabin saying what time we left, the compass bearing we were taking, and when we expected to return. My companions, all scientists, were serious about this, but not solemn or tedious. They forestalled trouble by preparing for it, and were guided, not deterred, by the danger inherent in their work. It is a pleasure to travel with such people, as in other walks of life, the person who feels compelled to dramatize the risks, or is either smugly complacent or eager to demonstrate his survival skills is someone you hope not to meet. 
the thing I love about Lopez is he demonstrates with the writing itself the values I think he's talking about. Um, so I, I highlighted some things here. So this is what he likes, serious. Well, he, this, is, this is what he doesn't want. Um, he wants serious, but he doesn't want solemn. And he certainly doesn't want tedious. That's no good. But on the other side is the left channel. Uh, you don't want people dramatizing, but you also don't want people smugly complacent. He's steering between the two channels, in a sense. You know, what is trustworthy? What's trustworthy in a travel companion? What's trustworthy uh, in, in a writer? So here is his words. Serious. That's what he wants. But not that. And not that. Certainly not that. It's pretty clear, I think. Um, so we can add Lopez. W would you put him there? Would you put him where we'd put the word serious? I mean, there may come a time when he waxes, you know, lyrical. We'll wait for that. But for now, he's pretty clearly over, over in that right channel. You could even apply this to exercise gurus like Richard Simmons. You know, he's a pretty left-channel dude. I mean, guy's <laughs> like, whoa, what's going on here? Um, you know, Bob Ross, there's a great feature in the New York Times on Bob, fantastic video feature. I recommend it. But you remember Bob Ross? You know, very flat. This is why he doesn't get into museums. Well, apparently now he has, but, but, but it's all tongue-in-cheek because we, we know he's a Hallmark. The guy's a walking Hallmark card. You know, we like Bob Ross, but is it art? Um, then we have Wilbur Ross, distant relative of Bob Ross. No, not a distant relative. But you know, real, he's lab coat, right? This guy never met an emotion. If he did, we, we don't know about it. There's Oprah. There's our friend. There's Alan Greenspan. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's pretty easy to see. Not a problem. This is, who, this is who we are. Of course, we have our presidential candidates. Some are folksy. Some are wonky. Hi, Joe. Here's Joe. I, I figured I'd mention this because we're in Iowa here. These are all friends of yours. You've all become friends with, with these people. So, so we've got Joe Biden. Who's over here? Oh, look at that. Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren's trying to act folksy, but we know she's wonky. You know, and, and that's her story. How can I not be pedantic? She wakes up every day and looks in the mirror and says, how can I not be pedantic? That's not a direct quote. I'm not sure what she says each day. But she, we know that she's trying to be the person you want to have a beer with, right? And, and we can see her doing that. Um, where would you put Pete Buttigieg? Where would you put Mayor Pete? I mean, pretty aspy, no? <laughs> he's kind of over there, you know, he's got that. Um, but, you know, but, you know, there's the self-help guru, Marion Williams. Look at her. <laughs> there she is <laughs> with her light bulb moments, you know, I mean. Kamala Harris um, sets up pretty well, but uh, maybe you disagree. Where would you put her? I think she's pretty central. Um, but you know, and you can play this. You, you know, it's your parlor game. You could you could rearrange these if you want. But I'm just giving you a for example. I think Cory Booker though is clearly to the left of Kamala Harris. Clearly, he does more with emotion and less with precision than Kamala Harris. Uh, let alone Elizabeth Warren. You know, he doesn't tend to say, I've got a plan for that. But, you know, it's not that he can't have plans. It's just he kind of resides over toward the left. 
we can do it with literature as well. You know, James Baldwin is uh, fully ensconced in the Central Channel, and that's why he's so he's so um, popular and 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 such. I mean, remains such a popular writer. Is you know somewhere in that Central Channel is our full humanness, and uh, Baldwin gets these reactions. You know, this this sense of warmth. McCarthy. Uh, if you know McCarthy's work, I mean, he's the king of restraint. I mean, very clipped. He waits a long, long time until there's some kind of revelation, some kind of release of emotion. So I, I would put him over in the right channel. I think Virginia Woolf might be toward the right channel as opposed to her contemporary D.A.'s Lawrence that she just looked at and was like, what are you doing over there? <laughs> you know, and Lawrence can get gushy, can get very gushy. Um, <clears throat> and you could do that with all kinds of writers. Uh, how many of you have already mapped yourself in here somewhere? <laughs> um, so here, uh, it's interesting when we look at humor. So here's one of my favorite writers who's, who's also on faculty. Uh, anybody see Lon? Did you see Lon earlier this summer? Did Lon give a craft talk? I'm sorry, I missed it. So here, here's, here's a piece by Lon Otto, and see where you'd put this in the central channel. A very short story. A man is at a party with his former lover and her new husband. She is one part, she's in one part of the room with her husband, talking with some old friends. He is a little way off, telling a story. And then he starts making a peculiar, kittenish, rhythmical, crying sound, then continues with his story. She and her husband do not look at each other. It is the sound she makes while making love. He does not pay any attention to them. The story is not about her. It is just that the woman, in his story, makes the same sound in bed as she makes. There is a certain tension in the room. <laughs> that's not the beginning of the story. That's actually the whole story. This is Lon's short story. I love this guy. Very precise, wouldn't you say? Um, it relies on precision. In fact, you better be precise because he's got a very complex situation to describe. At the heart of this is some very tender, vulnerable emotions, and yet he's writing it cold, as Chekhov says, with the, you know, who's in the room, who's where, what's the sound, it's high, it's kittenish, it's this, it's that. Um, but in the middle of it all, take a look at what's in red. We have a very gushy move toward the left channel, don't we? Making love. He could have said having sex. It's that little dot of left channel energy, we could say. Right, here's another piece of humor. It's decorative gourd season motherfuckers. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I can't wait to get my hands on some fucking gourds and arrange them in a horn-shaped basket on my dining room table. That shit is going to look so seasonal. I'm about to head up to the attic right now to find that wicker fucker, dust it off, jam it with an insanely ornate assortment of shellacked vegetables. When my, best when my guests come over, it's going to be like blammo. Check out my shellac decorative vegetable, assholes. Guess what season it is? Fucking fall. There's a nip in the air, and my house is full of mutant fucking squash. 
So way toward the left channel, you know, compared to Lon Otto. Again, a pretty easy side-by-side compare. And yet, though, look at these moments of precision. There's nothing left channel about that, is there? A horn-shaped basket on my dining room table. What's the problem? <laughs> so even in the middle of, you know, going far to the left, we have, you know, these moments of precision. And this is the tricky thing about good stand-up comics. They're actually extremely precise when they need to be. And then they create this kind of opposition, and it's the space between the two that gives us the humor. Humor is all about space. Um, some of the most talented people at, at moving in the central channel are, are the comedians, the people who use humor. Um, so on, on the left side, we could put hyperbole, exaggeration, etc. On the right side, we have understatement. There is a certain tension in the room. Very funny, very understated, very right channel. You can get humor from both. In fact, you, you probably need both in, in some measure. So um, what we're going toward here is the idea of being able to move in the central channel. You know, you may think your voice as a writer is in one place or in another place, and I, I actively combat the conventional theory of voice. I think it's a joke when people say they found their voice. I think it's an absolute joke. I think it's ridiculous. Um, or I say, congratulations, I'm happy for you, now go lose it. <laughs> or I say, which one? You know, because we're, we're all a lot of people. Um, and uh, I want to show you an example of movement in the central channel. I mean, I think we've started to see it, but, but here's, here, so, so this was the Ferrante passage we looked at in the beginning. And I think it only has one move into the left channel, perhaps, and that was the husband and the gesture he makes. This, uh, here's the word extravagant, this extravagant gesture that he makes, but this is very much situated in that kind of analytical precision side. This is the same narrator later in the book. So here's a passage from somewhere in the middle of Days of Abandonment. Where is she in now in the channel? As a girl, I had liked obscene language. It gave me a sense of masculine freedom. Now I knew that obscenity could raise sparks of madness if it came from a mouth as controlled as mine. So I closed my eyes. I held my head in my hands and squeezed my eyelids. Mario's woman, I imagined her ripe, in a toilet, her skirt hiked up. He was on her, working her sweaty cheeks and sinking his fingers in her ass, the floor slippery with sperm. No, stop. I pulled myself up suddenly, whistled to Otto. Otto is the dog. A whistle that Mario had taught me. Get rid of those images, that language. Get rid of the woman destroyed. While Otto ran here and there, carefully choosing places to urinate, I felt over every inch of my body the scratches of sexual abandonment, the danger of drowning in scorn for myself and nostalgia for him. What would you say about the difference here? between the first passage we saw and the passage on the right-hand side from the same narrator, from the same speaker. 
Yes. What's your name? Maggie. Yeah, she's she's letting go. Maggie's saying she's she's further to the left. There's much more emotionality, and yet even in the passage, she's trying to manage herself, isn't she? No, stop. Let me stop myself. Well, no, let me let go. You know, we've got this passage where there. I mean, we don't. She's imagining them having sex in a toilet, but she's letting herself go that direction. No, come back to this direction. Um, so you know, where is Ferrante? Ferrante is anywhere she needs to be. That's where Ferrante is. Maybe that's why she's so good. Maybe that's why she's so compelling. You never know where she's going to be next. Um, that is a fantastic trait to have in a writer. Don't shut down on some decision about what your voice needs to be. Sure, maybe you reside, you know, you tend to reside in one place or the other, but um, best advice I ever got about art is avoid the predictable. Not to be provocative, not to be artsy-fartsy, just because reality itself avoids the predictable. And art, uh, art that is uh, <clears throat> close to the texture of reality is usually the best art. Um, be where you need to be. And uh, I think, what did I do here? Yeah, and I think voice is here. Stay in the central channel. Uh, when you learn this week, check out where you've gone too far, where you've gone into the gutter of sentimentality on the left, or the other gutter of you know, the lab goggles, the lab coat on the right, abstraction. You're going to lose the reader either way. Um, but also, if you want to go into the left gutter and the right gutter, you can, but there's a rule. You're not allowed to go there unless you know you're going there. It's like the rule for cliches. You're not allowed to use a cliche unless the reader knows that you know it's a cliche. Therefore, it's not a cliche. You have a chance of redeeming the cliche or you know, being in control of it. Uh, thank you, everyone. <laughs>